Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you here. I'm feeling good. I'm ready to open God's Word with you. Uh, For those who are joining us on the patio or online, a special welcome to you. Uh, Today, we are continuing our series, and I just can't wait to get into the passage today. The title of this morning's message is Faith to Hear and See. Faith to Hear and See. And by the time we're done today, we will have completed Act 1 of this three-act drama that Mark has laid out for us in his gospel. If you've been following us for the better part of this series, you know that throughout the first act, people are amazed at Jesus and all the miracles and healings and the casting out of impure spirits, and they keep asking one question. There's a specific question that the crowds ask, and it's the question, who is this Jesus? They are amazed by what they witness. And today as we come to the final passage in the first act, we're going to look at four more miraculous acts that left people in amazement, that left them asking, who is this Jesus? We have many verses to cover today, so we're going to dive right into it. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We'll start in verse 24. I'll read to you verses 24 to 30. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. It says this, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet, they, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Now, as we said just a minute ago, Throughout the first act of Mark's gospel, we find people constantly amazed at what they see. In this case, though, here's a rare occasion where Jesus is amazed. He's amazed by the response of this Gentile woman. Specifically, he's amazed by her faith. You see, this woman had Uh, heard about all these miracles that Jesus was performing. And so she sought him out. She came to him. She fell at his feet, and she begged him to cast out the demon that had possessed her daughter. Now, the way Jesus responds is a little bit unusual. Some might say it was a bit peculiar. He says to her, First, let the children eat all they want. It's not right to take the children's bread 
and toss it to the dogs. Have you ever uh, fed your dog some food under the table? And so here Jesus says, it's not right to take the food for the children and then give it to the dogs. Now, we're going to talk about what Jesus meant when he said that in just a minute. But I want you to think about the response of this woman, this Gentile woman. And I want you to see the significance of the way she responds. She says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, I want you to visualize a table. A table is functional, but not only is a table functional, a table is kind of a powerful symbol. Have you ever heard the phrase, a seat at the table? In the business world, you often hear that phrase, a seat at the table. And when you hear that phrase in the business world, what that kind of means is, well, someone is important enough, powerful enough, someone has a big enough voice to have a seat at the table. So when you have a seat at the table in the business world, that means that your voice is going to be heard. And so visualize a table and a seat at the table. It's kind of like, do you ever remember growing up and then graduating from the kids' table at a holiday meal to finally the adult table? It's a powerful symbol. In a stadium, the best seats are usually reserved for those with lots of money or status or power. Now, I'm a huge Angels fan. Many of you know that, right? And I've gone to Angel Stadium many times over the years. Now, it's kind of a bad time to talk about the Angels. <laughs> They've lost 10 games in a row. Come on. But over the years, I've sat in almost every imaginable section at Angel Stadium. Usually it's way up there in the third deck. But every now and then, I get to sit in the nice seats. Some years ago when I served as a, I was a, an assistant to a council member for the city of Anaheim. And so I often got to go and sit in the press box suites. Those are great seats. But the best seats I've ever had at Angel Stadium came at the compliments of a friend of mine. His company had season seats, and he couldn't go that night, and so he called me up and said, Tim, you want to take your family? I'm like, sure. So he gave me four seats so I could take Joanne and the kids. And the kids were much younger back then, so we, we loaded the stroller into the car. We loaded all the snacks from home into the car. We made our way to the stadium, and I looked at the tickets, and they included VIP parking. That was special because we used to park outside the stadium. <laughs> and walk in to save money. But not that night. We got front row parking spots right next to the helmets there, the hats. So we get out, we get our stroller, we load up all the snacks into the bottom of the stroller, right, because we want to save money. And so then we stroll up to the gate, and we hand the gate attendant our tickets. And she said, okay, sir, Inside there, you'll see a red awning. Go to the red awning and take the elevator down. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, down? 
She must be mistaken because we're already on the ground level. She must have meant up. So we go to the elevator under the red awning. The elevator opens up, and there's another attendant inside the elevator. And he automatically presses down because that elevator only goes down. And so when the doors opened up, it was almost like music sounded. We walked out to this, what looked like this amazing, fancy hotel lobby. So we get out, we look at our tickets, we look at the door, and we get to the door, and there's another attendant at that door. And he opens up the door to our luxury dugout suite. So we were looking up at the players. We looked at their feet, the cleats. So for once in my entire life, and the only time, we had the best seats, literally, in the stadium. But not only the best seats, we had the best food. And I was kind of embarrassed because we get in there and we have all these snacks. Under our stroller, we did not touch a single snack because the company paid for all the best food that night. You know, where you sit is often determined by how much power you have, how much status, how much fame, or your friends in this case. When the Gentile woman approached Jesus, she had none of that. She had no power, no fame, no status, certainly no money. And in fact, she was considered an outcast. She was a Gentile woman, as outcast as you could be at that time. And yet she, because of her faith, she sought out Jesus. She fell at his feet, and she begged him to cast out the impure spirit that had possessed her daughter. Now let's go back to the statement. Jesus said, it's not right to take the food from the kids or the children and feed it to the dogs. When Jesus said it's not right, okay, and when he said first let the children eat all they want, children there in that context, it was in reference to the nation of Israel. You see, when Jesus came, he brought the gospel message, and it came specifically and initially to the house of Israel. And then throughout Mark's gospel, you see the expansion of that gospel message to go not only to the house of Israel, but beyond to the Gentile world. Now, we don't know exactly why Jesus referred to the Gentiles as dogs, now, I know the dogs are cute, okay? But let's face it, nobody, nobody likes to be referred to as a dog. So we don't know exactly why he would use that analogy. But here's what's amazing. This Gentile woman, she got it. She understood the message. And she understood that she was undeserving of that meal. In fact, she was happy with the crumbs. She was happy with the leftovers. And, and the most beautiful part of this woman's response is the very fact that 
she did not feel entitled. She did not feel entitled. Have you ever heard somebody utter the words, do you know who I am? If you've ever heard someone say, do you know who I am? That automatically means that that person is arrogant. It's like some, I don't know, supposedly well-known person going into a restaurant and not being given the best seat. Do you know who I am? Anytime you hear somebody utter those words, do you know who I am? Just know that that person is full of arrogance. I mean, talk about entitlement. The woman understood clearly that she was undeserving of God's grace. And what you and I need to understand today is that none of us is deserving of salvation. None of us. You know, the religious leaders in the house of Israel, they fail to understand this essential truth. None of us is worthy of God's grace. None of us is worthy to eat at God's table. And yet, by His grace, not only do we get to eat the crumbs, we get to feast as His children. And so the woman comes in humility with a humble posture, and Jesus honors her faith. And after he uh, cast out the demon that had possessed her daughter, he moved on from that region. And more people sought him out. A group of people brought a, a, deaf, a deaf man to Jesus, a man who could hardly speak, and they wanted their friend to be healed. And so let's look at that account, starting in verse 33. In verse 33, it says this, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation here. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears. Then, spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. I love that phrase. Uh, everything he does is wonderful. <laughs> everything he does you know, it turns to gold. If I had to come up with a modern-day paraphrase of what this sentence means, everything he does is wonderful, it would be this. He's good. That Jesus, he is good. He is really good. It's no wonder people kept asking, who is this Jesus? And I love the way that Mark says that the more Jesus told the people, the more they Spread the news. In fact, I think it was kind of a lost cause for Jesus to try to convince the people, hey, keep it quiet. It's kind of like this. Have you ever tried to uh, get a little child to stop crying? 
by saying, don't cry, stop crying, stop crying. It never works, right? Stop crying. And the kid's like, you know, the more you tell the kid to stop crying, the more the kid cries. It's the same with these people. And why, why wouldn't they be excited to share the news? Jesus made the deaf to hear. He gave speech to those who could not speak. And he made the blind to see. We're going to jump ahead in our passage and look at that healing. Jesus making the blind to see. Before we turn to that passage, I want to say this. These healings, they hold deep significance. You see, the restoring of sound, the restoring of speech, and then as we'll see, the restoring of sight, not only were these significant for those who received those healings, it was equally important for another group of people, the disciples. This would speak to Jesus' own disciples. So let's jump ahead now. Go to chapter 8 and look at verses 22 to 26. Starting in verse 22, it says this, When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on, the blind, or spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and said, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said. I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Now, I'm not sure if you caught this, but Jesus takes this blind man by hand out of the village before healing him. In the case of the deaf man, Jesus leads him away from the crowds before healing him. In the case of the Gentile woman, he didn't go to her house to heal her daughter, to cast out the spirit. He cast out the spirit from afar. You see, for Jesus, it was never a matter of, hey, look at me. I'm about to do a miracle. Gather around. Check this out. Be prepared to be wowed. For Jesus, it was actually just the opposite. He wanted to go away from the crowds. For Jesus, it was never about popularity or fame or spectacle. I don't know if you've been following the news lately, about the many scandals involving high-profile church leaders. 
We've seen pastors. We've seen megachurches. And we've seen entire denominations in the news in recent days for all the wrong reasons. And I've been thinking much about that the last week or so. And if we could come up with one common denominator, one common denominator that ties all of these scandals together, it would be this. It would be the abuse of power. That's the one common denominator. In fact, if we think about most of the problems in the world, they're usually the result of either the pursuit of power or the desire to hold on to power. That pretty much describes the vast majority of the problems in our world. And the subject of power is exactly what Jesus will address in Act 2, which begins next Sunday. Remember, Act 2 takes place from chapter 8b through chapter 10. And whereas in Act 1, the people, the crowds, the masses, they're the ones who are asking the question, who is this Jesus? In Act 2, there's another question that's being asked, but not by the people. In Act 2, the question that's being asked is being asked by the disciples. And the question is this, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And here's why. The disciples, like everybody else, they were hoping to rally behind a strong, powerful political leader who would conquer and overthrow the wicked government. But in Act 2, which begins next Sunday, Jesus will teach his disciples a hard lesson on the true meaning of greatness. Because Yes, Jesus came to establish his kingdom, but his kingdom was not of this world. His kingdom was and is a spiritual kingdom. And so here at the end of Act 1, these physical healings, the deaf man who could not speak being healed, the blind man being healed, these physical healings, as powerful as they were, they actually only served to point us to the ultimate reason why Jesus came, and that's to provide spiritual healing. And that's why you and I, we are called to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And that's in the spiritual sense. You see, because not being able to see physically, not being able to hear audibly, not being able to speak verbally, they have no bearing on our ability to hear and see 
spiritually. They have no bearing whatsoever. A person can have 20-20 vision and still be blind to the truth of the gospel. A person could hear the faintest of sounds and still not discern the truth of the gospel. The religious leaders, they suffered from spiritual blindness. They suffered from spiritual deafness. Look at chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. Chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. When the Pharisees, the religious leaders, heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and they started to argue with him. Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. When he heard this, he sighed deeply. (sighs) He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat and left them. And he crossed to the other side of the lake. Here's the scene. The Pharisees, these religious leaders, they saw Jesus perform these healings. But they weren't satisfied. You see, these religious leaders, they thought, oh, the healing of the blind or the deaf, those are okay, but those are minor miracles. Jesus Show us a spectacular miracle. Like, like throw fire from heaven. Or, or have bread fall from the sky. Then we'll believe you. And so then Jesus sighs. Have you ever done a sigh like that? Like, <sighs> we've been there. We've all done that. Usually it's accompanied by the shaking of the head. <sighs> Don't you get it? Come on. The Pharisees were blind and deaf to the truth of the gospel. But here's what's remarkable. You might expect that from the Pharisees. Maybe. But they weren't the only group who struggled to understand the truth of what Jesus was saying. His own disciples struggled to understand that truth. Look at verses 14 to 21. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying. So he said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes. Can't you see? You have ears. Can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? Twelve, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, How many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet? He asked them. Do you remember last month? We studied the feeding of the 5,000. That was back in chapter 6. Now you would think that a miracle like that would be etched forever 
in the minds of those who witnessed it. You would think that, right? I mean, how in the world could the disciples forget something like that? And yet, they forgot that miracle. You see, because what we just read was the account of Jesus not only describing the feeding of the 5,000, but also the feeding of the 4,000. Those are two separate feedings, two separate miracles. And so if we go back to chapter 8, starting in verse 1 now, we'll see the feeding of the 4,000. Go back to Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. Now look at verse 4. His disciples replied, How are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Did you catch that? This was after Jesus had fed the 5,000. And yet, here in this case, the disciples, they could not get it. They had already witnessed him feeding the 5,000, and now here they are again saying, we can't do this. It's impossible. I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus didn't shake his head inside. How quickly they forget. Now, before we become, we become too judgmental on the disciples, how quickly do we forget sometimes in our own lives? I want to go back right now to the healing of the blind man because this is going to tie all these miracles together. The healing of the blind man, if you recall when we read it just a minute ago, it happened in stages. Do you recall that? Jesus first spit on the man's eyes, then he laid his hands on the man's eyes, and then he asked the man, can you see anything now? And the man said, I can see people, but I can't see them clearly. They look like trees. So Jesus, in the second stage, puts his hands again on the man's eyes, says, can you see clearly now? And the man's sight was fully restored. One commentator says this, this unusual two-stage healing holds deep significance. You see, this physical healing of the blind man, it comes between two examples of the disciples' spiritual blindness. We just saw the first one. The disciples, they were blind. They were like, how can we feed all these people? 
Next week, when we get to Act 2, the later part of chapter 8, we'll see the other example of the disciples' spiritual blindness. Here's the point. This physical healing of blindness, it serves as a paradigm for the spiritual healing of the disciples' sight, which comes gradually and with difficulty. The disciples would have to learn the hard way. Again, that's why they asked the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? They didn't get it right away. But over time, finally a light bulb went off. Have you ever had a light bulb moment in your life? I have. I'm sure we all have at some point. If not, I hope you have one soon. I think the past couple of years has been an eye-opening time. And I hope in some ways a light bulb moment for many people in our country and in our world. For Christians and for those who look at the lives of people who name the name of Christ. And I think sadly over the last two years, For too many people who name the name of Christ, the past, couple of year, the past couple of years has been all about demanding one's rights, holding on to power, trying to expand that power, and doing it all in the name of Jesus. When all said and done, when we look back on this season, the last two years or so, as followers of Jesus Christ, will we best remember this season, the last two years, as being a time when Christians demanded our rights, when Christians were the source of strife and conflict and division? when Christians tried to gain and maintain power in the political arena? I hope not. I hope, not. I hope that we will not look back on this season and remember it for those things. The reality, though, is we've seen that happen. I've sighed many times in the last couple of years. I've sighed watching and listening to Christians being anything but Christ-like. But there's hope. I truly believe there's hope. As difficult as it is for us to change, as for people to change, and I know, believe me, it is hard. Maybe you know someone in your life that that person is never going to change. And the cynical side of me thinks that. Oh, he is who he is. She is who she is. I keep telling myself that over and over again. But I'm here to tell you this, that there is hope. There is hope for change. 
There is hope for a light bulb moment. And I hope that we as followers of Jesus, that we can look back on this season of life, the last two years, and remember it for being a time when, when we demonstrated the compassion of Jesus, when we lived out the Beatitudes, when we even relinquished our rights, and when we loved God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and when we loved our neighbor as ourselves. You see, that's the common denominator that ties all of these miracles together. Jesus came to establish his kingdom. It was not a kingdom that the disciples or the crowds expected. Oh, but it is so much better. And so may we have faith to hear and to see that truth. That is my prayer for myself and for our church and all who call themselves followers of Jesus, that we would look like him.